You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. With some flippancy and inspired by a comment from Gina Maida's audio diary, the Cycling Podcast had already anointed a cycling pope at this Giro d'Italia, only for Mikel Lander to be defrocked or at least derailed by a terrible crash and early withdrawal the very next day. But truthfully, the Pope of Italian cycling at least, so he was sometimes called, died in September 2014. He was 93 and would have celebrated his 100th birthday in 2021. His name was Alfredo Martini, and on Thursday the Giro d'Italia passed through his hometown of Sesto Fiorentino as a tribute to his achievements, his legacy, and to the innumerable ways he touched and in some cases shaped lives through the medium of the bicycle, which Martini once said should win the Nobel Peace Prize. The son of a modest family and a father working long shifts in the Gironi porcelain works, Martini started cycling at the age of eight on a racing bike bought for him with two months of his father's wages. He began watching races, then competing in them against the fledgling Tuscan fuori classe Gino Bartali. Martini was no Bartali, but looked en route for a solid career, until his progress was halted by the Second World War. From dyed-in-the-wool socialist stock and a stronghold in the red belt of central Italy, Martini joined the Italian resistance, specifically the Lanciotto Ballerini Partisan Brigade. The day when Benito Mussolini was arrested in July 1943 was therefore a happy one for Martini, also because, as he recalled later, he was astride his bicycle. The joy machine that he once told the journalist Gianni Mura immediately brought three words to mind. Freedom, hope and dignity. One of Martini's regular assignments was as a bicycle courier of Molotov cocktails to his partisan comrades stationed on the Monte Morello above Sesto. If I'd crashed, they would have exploded and taken me with them, Martini said once. On Thursday, it was therefore apt and somewhat poignant that his grandson, Matteo, was stationed at kilometre 85 on the Giro stage route, on the summit of the Morello, as he advised me when we made plans to meet at the point on the road where he had spray-painted the words Per sempre Alfredo, Alfredo forever. Also the name of the pro-race Matteo helped to launch this year and the 60-strong junior team set up in his grandfather's name. La prima in assoluto è, è onestà. The first thing that comes into my head when I think about my granddad is honesty, basic human honesty and intellectual honesty. That was also why young people were at the centre of everything for him. He used to say that their freshness, their energy was the source of everything good and the strength we all need to go forward. He would also say that we shouldn't just believe in young people but also listen to them. He had this wonderful voice and that was also a big part of his charisma. I saw him give lectures in universities or talks in schools where 600 kids were hanging on his every word in silence. That's something you're born with. There's no real way to develop that. Thanks to my granddad, our whole family grew up surrounded by bikes and cycling. Grandad, he was there when the famous photo of Coppi handing the water bottle to Bartali or vice versa was taken during the 1952 tour. But whenever anyone asked who passed it to whom, he always said it didn't matter. What mattered was that two arch rivals drank from the same water bottle. Two 
Martini's fairness, compassion and loyalty went far beyond cycling. Proof of that was his relationship with lifelong friend Fiorenzo Magni, a fellow Tuscan but a man whose political convictions and also role in the Second World War were at the antipodes of Martini's. A recently published book, I Silenzi di Alfredo Martini by Franco Quercioli, revisits Magni's involvement in the 1944 Battle of Vallibona, where Magni fought for the fascist Repubblica Sociale Italiana, and recalls Martini's testimony when Magni was put on trial three years later. Martini ultimately defended his friend in court, thereby contributing to his absolution. Their friendship was too precious to him, Quercioli writes. As a rider, Martini finished third in the Giro in 1950, that year also winning a stage to Florence and wearing the pink jersey for a day. When Grandad took the pink jersey in Brescia the next morning, the first to congratulate him was Coppi. He stepped to one side and said, beautiful jersey, Alfredo. And Grandad said, yep, I'm just keeping it warm for you. Martini, though, had not yet found his vocation. He had been a flinty, resilient rider, starting eight Giri d'Italia and finishing all of them. But he would become a legendary director sportif. He guided Gosta Pettersson to Giro glory from the Ferretti team car in 1971. And four years later, finally, Martini was appointed to the position in which he would become more than a serial collector of world titles, more than a brilliant tactician or intuitive psychologist, but something resembling the soul and the conscience of the whole sport in Italy. In total, as Italy's national selector, or Citi, between 1975 and 1997, Martini claimed six rainbow jerseys and 20 world championship medals in total. He had identified a worthy heir in another Tuscan, Franco Ballerini, and made way for him in 1998, but stayed at Ballerini's side as a mentor, sage, and almost paternal guide, which is what he remained until 2010, and Ballerini's tragic death in a rally car accident. Lisbon was Franco's first Worlds as the national team selector. I'm Alfredo's grandson, but Franco was his son. I was doing an amateur race the day Franco died. They called me and said Franco's dead, and I just said, well, Grandad will die as well then. And a big part of him did die. Franco became Franco because he had Grandad by his side. But Franco also gave Grandad his youth back. He brought him back to his world. He gave him a second youth. I witnessed that friendship and it was just marvellous. Marvellous. I'm Ivan Basso and uh, I win Giro d'Italia 2006 and 2010 and Alfredo Martini was an icona for me for all my life. Well, I think it's uh, the, 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 the monument for us, for the all the Italian young cyclists, uh, always have a good words. Uh, I remember in all my career when I'm young, I meet him uh, in some races, he it's, always it's says something interesting. And, uh, and uh, all he say to me, I take a note, I put here. Because it's uh, um, experience, class, uh, and, uh, and uh, of course, uh, one of the most expert uh, manager uh, ever. 
I am Mauricio Fondes, uh, former world champion. Uh, uh, I won the world championships in 88 in Ronce, Belgium. It's, it's a special, I think he was a special man because uh, he always was, was calm and he took always the responsibility. He, so for, for, that, for that reason, I think it's, it's not only, only a, a great uh, GT, but uh, it's a, a great person. Anche il diritto di non essere campione, perché se noi cerchiamo di far diventare campione a tutti i costi uno, eh, diciamo già la cosa, ecco perché è uscito fuori questa... Well, Rich, here we are in Sesto Fiorentino on the route of today's stage. Today's stage is a bit of a, well, it's an homage to Alfredo Martini and to Gino Bartoli as well. But we're in Sesto, which is where Alfredo spent all of his life. We're going to meet his grandson in a minute. But we're also now going to go into the house. We've been invited into the house where Alfredo lived for most of his life and where his daughter, Milvia, still lives. It's a sort of dormitory town to Florence, isn't it? And it, uh, well, I've been to several of those uh, fairly, fairly unassuming uh, little street. This, but uh, well appointed, elegant. Yeah, well, well appointed, and elegant. I agree with, I agree with those descriptions. And so his granddaughter, did you say, were daughter, missing? daughters? Uh, did she live? Has she lived here for since his death or before? I mean, Italian families tend to live together, don't they? I think she's also spent most of her life here. And, um, yeah, Alfredo also died in this house in 2014. Anyway, let's go and see what is in there. Um, I understand it's a bit of a museum, a bit of a shrine to Alfredo. Okay. <laughs> Well, it was amazing, Daniel. I mean, you, you mentioned before we went in that it was uh, a shrine, uh, but the, the entrance hall is entirely given over to display cabinets, pictures on the wall of Martini, Martini with various Italian champions, awards that he received, books. It was incredible. Absolutely extraordinary, wasn't it, Rich? Um, awards, um, photos of, of all of the champions, you know, the six world um, championships that he won as the national coach and um, Bugno, Fondriest and but the most impressive thing the most extraordinary thing were uh, M- Martini's famous notebooks which you know I've heard about and people uh, well it's well documented that he logged pretty much everything by hand but to see them is is something else and you know complete results of races and particularly the races before the world championships based on which he would choose his team and he would sit at that desk in the entry in the hall there and uh, god knows how many hours he he spent um you know every day presumably keeping those up to date and then also his diaries and milvian got out one of his tiny tiny sort of not even pocket size matchbox sized diaries from 1953 and she was curious she she looked up her birthday when she was born and really if you go through the diaries it's all it's mainly serves to document and log Alfredo's training he was still um, competing um, professionally at that point but she found her birthday and there was a little line there Milvia was born and then the next day it was back to training <laughs> yeah I take it back uh, I take back what I said about it being a, 
sort of unassuming because inside it, it, it felt very kind of plush and there's obviously a lot of work goes into maintaining that dusting polishing there's a lot a lot to polish in there I was quite struck by a few of the photographs showed him with people like Marco Pantani and he seemed to always be clutching their face with both hands and, and from that you get the sense of a very uh, kind of warm and quite charismatic uh, person and because he he was when I was saw pictures of me he looked like a very old man but he obviously had been around for so long they had this authority about him and that comes across in a lot of the pictures but there's this warmth as well and he had a real warmth and this really beautiful it's got a soft Tuscan accent this very mellow Tuscan accent it was like a sort of balsam a solve for um, whatever anxieties riders or anyone else might be feeling I think that was one of the reasons why you know he was so fondly remembered I mean I had limited experiences with him but I've just told Milva there I first met him in 2001 at the Worlds in Lisbon and I remember he'd been sort of brought back then to, to mentor Franco Ballerini a fellow Tuscan who had become the national coach and he was like a son to Alfredo but Alfredo had been dispatched to Lisbon to help him out and I remember he, he arrived with a little rucksack and he was like a kid going on a, a school trip he was 80 at the time so already quite an old man and I think he had his first mobile phone with uh, with numbers sort of handwritten a sticky label on the back of the mobile phone and um, and then I didn't see him for years um, or I didn't speak to him for years and then about 10 or 12 years later one of the races that finished in London I can't remember whether it was the Olympic test event or the first ride London which would have been just before he died um, I saw him again and um, he, he remembered things about me. He remembered that I'd worked for MAPE and, you know, this was out without any prompting, any sort of soliciting. I think he might have even remembered my name, which I was just absolutely blown away by. Um, he was by then in his 90s. Um, it was funny, Milvia just said that, I mean, she's obviously very emotional today, didn't really want to do an interview as such. Um, but she said one of his biggest regrets was that in 2014, he didn't make it to the end of the Vuelta. He died, he was watching the stage one afternoon and... He, you know, he, he said he didn't feel well and he went to lie down on the, in the living room that we've just seen and he died a couple of hours later pretty peacefully but yeah, he didn't make it to the end of that year's welter It's amazing walking into that um, entrance hallway and that doesn't really do it justice because it's quite big um, the sense of a life lived in cycling you know, he obviously left a huge mark on cycling but cycling obviously left a huge mark on him as well and for his family you know who he is is cycling I mean the, the walls as you say the diaries go back to the 1950s um, and his, his daughter was obviously very very welcoming and uh, keen to not keen to have her photograph taken she didn't like the jumper that she was wearing mm-hmm. but um, you know I guess emotional but also very proud you know the, the fact that we've made this sort of little pilgrimage here um, and, and to to, to just see that display and I guess it's, it's there as a display for them and for other people she, she said the whirring of bicycle wheels has been the soundtrack to the life of the whole family one didn't have to win a rainbow jersey or even be selected for the Italian national team to appreciate Martini's dedication insight and humanity Continually being overlooked for a place in the Azzurri World's team motivated Max Chandri to switch nationalities in the 90s. But not even he would argue with Martini's wisdom in hindsight. In the days, I'm talking about early 90s, uh, if you didn't race for an Italian team, you know, you wasn't kind of uh, welcome in the national team just because 
they always thought that uh, racing for a foreign team, you could then help somebody else and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I kind of, in the days when I used to win quite a well, few races or whatever per year, uh, I couldn't get in the national team, so I looked at the option to, to get the, the, the British license, you know, and then our relationship didn't, didn't go any further or didn't go backwards. It just kind of stayed the same, you know. But um, just a few years ago, after the Bettini uh, commissaire, when I was kind of nominated for, for national commissaire, uh, he was close to my house and I went to see him and, uh, and we talked about that. And he kind of apologized in the days, you know, I said, ah, sorry. And, and then he, you know, he's, he's really old, you know, just sitting in the couch and we just gone through things. I went to see him two or three times, actually. And uh, yeah, so we kind of made up for the, what happened in the past. In the days we used to have, uh, we used to have in the, in the national Italian calendar, you used to have the races called Premondiale. Premondiale used to be a race where you used to kind of assign the jersey, you know, so here you go, somebody, I don't know, I could just remember Farizin, you know, a guy who used to be a worker in the national team, used to make one attack on a climb, and then the peloton said, hey, you got, you got the, the arm warmers, the national arm warmers are yours, you know, so everybody, and, and you could see Alfredo, head out of the car with his little taquino, you know, a little, um, little notebook. notebook, and he was, like, kind of putting down on notebook, oh, I see this guy, and, just, and it was just, like, something, you know, it was just very prestigious that he, if he saw you and he talked to you, and it was something you really wanted to, you know, and now you see riders, oh, I'm not going to go to the Worlds, I'm not going to go to the Olympics. I mean, a national team for, for an Italian rider is, is the national team. You know, a guy what what been through through thick and thin in terms of cycling. You know, saw a lot, uh, won a lot. So a big institution for cycling, Italian cycling. Il doping. A parte uscito fuori per grossi interessi di questi mascalzoni che cercano di 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 dare questi veleni ai corridori per per i propri interessi. Ma ecco, se noi riusciamo a allontanare even in the current generation of Italian and particularly Tuscan riders, there are those upon whom Martini made a deep and lasting impression. Alberto Bettio is a fellow Fiorentino and one of the last riders in the current peloton to experience and carry with him the old Martini magic. Alberto, Alfredo Martini, a, you know, a mythical figure of Tuscan cycling. And before he died, I know that you had a bit of contact with him. Just explain that to me. Yeah, so I, I had the opportunity to to go and see Alfredo's house uh, because we have a lot of friends in common and uh, I was in the last uh, the last uh, year of uh, my my school uh, after five years and uh, of course I have to prepare a, an argument with a thesis for the, the for the graduation and uh, uh, thanks to the friends we have in, we had in common uh, I had the opportunity yeah to see his uh, his family and his, his house and we spent an afternoon I remember watching Flash Vallon I think it was 2000 uh, 2011 something like that 13 12 and uh, yeah he gave me also he prepared uh, a speech for me and uh, he, he gave me uh, as a present uh, one of uh, his book when I did uh, the first part of the book and I keep this book uh, forever with me in my, in my room. Still guessing on fueling, not sure what or when to eat and drink, on rights that matter, never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more 
on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. The Giro d'Italia arrives in Verona on Friday afternoon and one man hoping to be there to see it is Umberto Poli, who was born in the city and lives around 25 kilometres away now. He rides for Team Novo Nordisk, which was co-founded as Team Type 1 by Phil Sutherland, who also started Super Sapiens, the title sponsors of our Kilometre Zero series. Umberto was diagnosed as a Type 1 diabetic when he was 16. He realised something was wrong when he found he was getting exhausted earlier in junior races, and a trip to the hospital and a blood test gave him the diagnosis. A little over four years later, though, he was on the start line at the 2017 Milan-San Remo, at 20 years of age, the youngest rider in the race that year. It was just his second race as a pro after the Dubai Tour, so he was stunned when he was asked by the sports director in the pre-race meeting to get in the early break. I start in the front and I just attack and follow the other guys and the peloton gets me to the top of Capoberta. So 253-55k in the front, I say. But it's the first time I pass this case, so my training maximum I did the 190k, so I never passed 200k in my life. <laughs> Team Novo Nordisk has had a wild card to Milan San Remo every year since 2015, except for the Covid hit 2020 season. As one of the longest races on the calendar, usually lasting around seven hours, it's a perfect event to prove that diabetes can be managed effectively in an endurance sporting event with the right type of monitoring. And perhaps it's also a step on the way to Novo Nordisk being offered a wild card to the Giro d'Italia in future. Who knows? To find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. At Martini's funeral, there could have been no one better to honour his patrimony than Gianni Mora, the now also late doyen of Italian sports journalism, who, like Martini, had made a career out of demonstrating that simple words were often the most profound. There are some unbearable funerals, but this is a beautiful one. Beautiful because there's a touch of Alfredo to it, Mora said in his eulogy. But really, on that bitter yet somehow sweet day in Sesto Fiorentino in September 2014, Martini would likely have thanked his many friends for their generous words, but also kindly reminded them of what he had written by hand, no doubt, as was his wont, just a year or so earlier. I've been called an ambassador of cycling. People have seen me as some kind of prophet, guru or missionary, but I've always thought I could have done more. If I look back, I think the bike and cycling gave me more than I've given them. I would have liked to give twice as much, but you also have to recognise your own limitations, with honesty. The bike always deserves more. 100 years ago, it was a means of transport, often a luxury, to take you to work. With it, people learned what it meant to pedal, uphill or downhill, on white roads and cobbles, early in the morning and late at night. And the riders knew that the people were close to them, excited by them, somehow riding with them. 
Today, a century later, the bicycle is becoming ever more important. It's the key to urban mobility and also to understanding cities. It's a contribution to society. And there are no side effects. Someone who travels by bike whistles as they go, reflects, makes plans. Someone who travels by car finds themselves getting angry or sad. The bike has never disappointed me. Every bicycle is a smile. And if it was up to me, the bicycle would win the Nobel Peace Prize. You have been listening to an episode of Kilometre Zero by The Cycling Podcast, supported by Super Sapiens. It was presented by me, Daniel Freeber, and produced by Tom Wally. 